0: Hi, this is Mark Zaslav, writer, director, producer, and someone who doesn't get royalties, and you are listening to Spoiler Country.
1: Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal. Of the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kendrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country.
2: Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on SpoilerVerge.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster. Find Spoiler Country and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, Leave us the voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Welcome back, everybody, to Spoiler Country. I am Johnny Orsley, and today on the show, we got two-time Emmy Award winner and Humanitarian Prize winner, Mark Zaslov, who comes on, chats with Jeff about reminiscing about his career, about the projects that he's worked on throughout the years, that people just hold near and dear to their hearts, as well as Mighty Max, who you'll find out that Jeff is a pretty big fan of. So I'm not going to waste your time because I want you to get into this one. So here he is. Here is Mark Zaslov in his own words.
1: Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have the fantastic Mark Zaslov. How are we doing, uh, Mark? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's definitely my pleasure. I'm a big fan of yours.
0: Well, that's good to know. Nice to know there's at least one.
1: <laughs> I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's many. I, I as I was doing some of the research on you actually, and I saw just how many shows you you were a part of. It's amazing to think of how many Facebook groups and other groups that I know of of people who are fans of you.
0: I it's a funny thing cuz I I am one of those people who who once it's out of my hands, I I never look at my old work. And so when I hear that people like it and watch it or have watched it, it's it's always very flattering cuz I it's never on my mind. It's always kind of amazing when, you know, I find out later that oh, I I, I watched your show and I'm like, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, like I said, I mean, there's
1: so much of, of what you did, I, I, and I, we'll get, we'll get to more details in, in, in a little bit and discuss it more, but when I was initially wanting to talk to you, I want to discuss one of my favorite shows growing up, Mighty Max, but I decided, you know, as I do with all my interviews, I'm going to do some research into the gentleman and learn more about him, and the amount of shows that you were attached to, like I said, was just immense. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about, um, you got GoBots, you have Tailspin, Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, I mean... You you did a, you've done a lot of stuff.
0: Still doing it, hopefully. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, well, we're gonna talk about your your new show as well that you're working on. Molly of is it Denali?
0: Oh no, that was three or four shows ago. Uh, yes, that was something I, I I did some writing on. Yeah, I'm. That's there is more now. Some of which I can't even speak on because legally I've been sworn to secrecy, which oh. is really weird to me.
1: Even if you're sworn to secrecy, could you tell us the company which you're writing for?
0: No, I am actually sworn to secrecy about that too. Holy crap. Which uh, is really weird. Yeah. But <laughs> on the other hand, I am, I am doing a, a pilot sitcom for a sitcom, a live action uh, sitcom. I'm writing on a, a show, an uh, international show called Treasure Trekkers, which okay. is really has wonderful animation. I, I came on board in the second season and, and they have some sort of game animation platform that they work on. So it looks really, really wonderful. And what else? Oh, I'm story editing something. Oh, Zunicorns, which hasn't come out yet.
1: So when, like, when are the ideal release dates for these programs? Haven't a clue. <laughs> no one tells
0: me anything. The sitcom, the sitcom pandemic permitting will probably be shot in the spring uh, of next year. So I'm just doing the pilot, but one of the producers just had a baby. So we're sort of on hiatus for the moment.
1: Oh, wow. Well, c- uh, congratulations to the producer. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so did the pandemic really put a stop to a lot of what you were doing at the time? Did it kill the momentum?
0: Actually, I have been busier now than in quite a while. For whatever reason, live action took a little bit of a hit because they didn't know what they were doing. But from a writing standpoint, you can stockpile. So a lot of companies are getting things in the works. And now they're starting to figure out how to shoot, even with the pandemic. And animation just went crazy because you can... They figured out that you can do all that during a pandemic.
1: So that must cost a fortune. I mean, I assume it's the animators doing it from their home, but you, I, I would have guessed the equipment that's necessary to do modern animation is extremely expensive and unwieldy. Maybe I'm just totally wrong.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really depends. I mean, nowadays, much like how you can shoot a movie on an iPhone, yeah. I mean, technology and cut it on your home computer. I've edited a lot of stuff. On granted, you you have to get a somewhat higher end one. But it's surprising what can be done at home, although I'm not sure how many of the companies. I think the companies do bring people in because a lot of the places are like in India that I've been working with lately. And I think they have ways of safely bringing people in because it's not like everybody's mingling. And, and, uh, and it's far know,
1: safer in India right now with the
0: coronavirus. You'd know better than I would. I'm, <laughs> I'm just hunkered down here, hiding out not letting anybody touch me. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the way to be. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm a high school teacher. I teach at a, a therapeutic high school and it, it, it's definitely a major concern with COVID all around. And obviously we're working with the students. You're in person, we're not doing distance learning at this point. It is a, it's a constant reminder of the situation right
0: now. <laughs> I'll bet. And, and hats off to you because it, it's complicated. It, it's easy for me, you know, because I stay at home all the time anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, granted, you know, when you're shooting something or, you know, you're producing, but as the writer part of me, which is where everything comes from, you know, n- except for the possible horrible death, yes. uh, this is kind of heaven for me, you know.
1: <laughs> well, with the, the shows that you're working on now, that hopefully when, when you're ready to discuss them, you can definitely come back on. Well, at least I hope you do. I know the shows that, uh, you have worked on in the past are mostly what looks like hand-drawn animation are the current ones hand-drawn or are they the computer i'm not, they're not cg i don't know the computer graphic cartoons i don't know the, the term for the ones that are drawn on um, the computer
0: well pretty much everything has gone computer whether it's 2d which you know like flash like peppa pig or something like that or it's cg which is you know the 3d kind of stuff which you know, started with Pixar and Toy Story and all that kind of stuff. So everything's pretty much that now. I'm sure there are still some hand-drawn, but not that I know of for TV. I guess some movies. But even then, you're doing your coloring on computer. You're doing – I mean, it's just easier. You know, even mm-hmm. if you're hand-drawing it, you're still going to do it on your computer. So it's, it's taken a lot out of it.
1: Now, do you prefer the 2D um, animation that, like I said b- – back like, when i grew up i'm i'm 40 now when i grew up obviously like with money max went not the nice the beautiful hand-drawn art do you prefer that kind of art or what they're doing now like said the pixar 3d art
0: i prefer good art regardless <laughs> of how it's done and i've seen it done well both ways and i've seen it done and had it done to me horribly both ways so <laughs> the the media changes things slightly or the medium i always get them mixed up to me you know you would know better it changes how you approach things be it live action or animation cg and live action have kind of melded it's surprising it used to be you'd be asked why are we making a cartoon of this you know and Mm. and it usually was you know obvious like mighty max you couldn't have done live action cheaply Mm. you know it just would have been too expensive and it probably wouldn't have looked good if it were cheap yeah nowadays you could probably do that live action it would be more expensive but surprisingly closer and it would look good so now when you ask that question why is it animation it's much more difficult to respond to but the writing and the production you just you kind of you know aim it slightly differently depending on what you're using but anything can be good or bad
1: now um, i did i read correctly that your father was a famous animator on programs like charlie brown christmas and is was that where you initially got your love for animation storytelling?
0: Oh, uh, he... I don't know, famous. I don't know if any of us are famous. He was by far the talent. He was a animator, director, producer. He started off when he was 15. He lived across from Warner Brothers or his grandparents or great aunts. I forget. But he'd worked with uh, Termite Terrace. He would clean brushes and stuff. And then he got in with UPA and he was sent to art school. He, also, he eventually became head of drawing at Otis so he was a fine artist and an animator and my love for animation I, my love for it was live action and novels <laughs> came first okay and then I was looking for work you know for money because I was getting a bunch of stuff optioned in live action but no big payment and novels yeah. of course you know are weird and I went animation I can do that animators <laughs> are like drunk guys living you know on my living room floor you know on Saturday <laughs> night so what the heck? And so I walked into Hanna-Barbera and my dad was working there and I, it was a tiny bit of nepotism, but really all that happened was, is he went, go talk to these guys, They're story editors, not on a show of his, by the way, on the GoBots. Yeah, yeah. And, and I walked in, I said, Hey, can I write? And they go, can you write? And I handed them a live action script. They go, okay, you can write, do some premises and we'll see if, you know, anything sparks. And, and, you know that was Jeff Siegel and and Kelly Ward, and they were nice enough to let me start doing it. And then I've been doing animation, live action, and novels ever since.
1: That's awesome. I will say though, I do think it's a it's a great travesty that the Charlie Brown shows now are only on Apple streaming. I used to watch them every season, the the Charlie Brown specials.
0: Yeah, you know they're getting such backlash. It'll at it last it'll be. I'll be curious to see what happens moving forward. You know, because it's one of those things perennials are always weird you know christmas things you just think they're going to be there and then suddenly they're not and I, I i don't know we'll see how many people you know if they can monetize it or if people just go and hey, forget it
1: I, I unfortunately i think it might be for, i mean there's so many streaming streaming options i and i will say apple is one of the few that i don't own a streaming service to a subscription to and it, yeah it, it, it will be different what halloween going by without you know the great pumpkin charlie brown and christmas up you know yeah. <laughs> There's huge parts of our, our lives It's amazing when they're not there
0: anymore Yeah, and, and it's just kind of a shame Because I think those Especially Christmas things When they work year after year They always hold up And so people are just missing out As simple as the Charlie Brown Christmas was I think that was maybe the best one for me Yeah But, but it was just so simple and universal And I'm not sure much of it changed You know, kids still acting like kids And whatever the Peanuts kids are Still works, so I don't know,
1: and and I will say, no matter how old I get, the shows don't lose anything, which is which is kind of interesting, you know. Even as a 40 year old, I can watch Charlie Brown and have a very similar feeling about it as I did when I was like eight.
0: <laughs> well, that's Rudolph for me, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> well, we'll say, oh, those are classics as well. I did love the Rudolph um episodes, then. What, what was it, Rudolph and uh, to- the Toyland one? Mr. Yeah, Toys? the
0: Island of Misfit Toys. Toys. I actually did a dissertation on that for. A philosophy class at college once oh wow and and and, and the theological meaning behind it and <laughs> the professor just kind of looked at me and shook his head so 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 what was your ultimate thesis on that i can't remember completely but it was it was really how king Moonbeam, beam i think his name was how that's not actually his real job so what is his real job and what kind of <laughs> deity is he Because once they get all those toys off there, he really has nothing else to do. So that couldn't have been his job. So I think I got into, you know, trying to look at other, you know, you know, from Greek mythology to scan, you know, where would he have fit in and where did he come from and how did he fall into this trap and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I don't remember the final stuff of it, but I remember (laughs) it was vaguely about that. What was his original job?
1: That's some deep thinking on the island, Mister Toys. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, for some reason that one just caught me. I never quite got into the others quite that way.
1: So, so since you're talking about your time at college, so I read that you attended Berkeley with a major in Mm -hmm. astrophysics. Something that I've always, I always loved astrophysics. Though my math skills were always too shitty to actually do anything with that love of um, of astrophysics. But what drew you to astrophysics?
0: Well. Well, for, I really loved amateur astronomy when I was a kid, you know, and I had telescopes and, and stuff because there were older kids that were into it as well. And so we'd all do stuff. And then even though we were a creative family, like one of my sisters is a classical singer and a classical opera singer and others were photographer, we, we got all that, but I like science as well. And, and I never thought going to college for, you know, to learn to write or something was worthwhile. So it was like, well, If we're going to go, you know, (laughs) let's do something. And so I thought, well, let's try astronomy. Now, regular astronomy wouldn't have worked as well because that's, you know, like I started in physics, but it was like too much engineering. Mm. So I ended up taking one astronomy course because I was like, oh, you know, I like astronomy. And we all went to have beer, the grad students, the professor, everybody. He was actually dean of the astronomy department teaching it. And every Friday they'd have beer. And I went, I'm changing my major. And it was (laughs) similar astrophysics it was almost the same classes except for plasma physics yeah and applied math you know applied math with you know the same for both and uh, so i got into theoretical astrophysics because that was just like writing you just made stuff up
1: that's really i mean astrophysics <laughs> that's one hell of a high iq type field
0: well actually not over the years i figured it out i'm actually not particularly smart <laughs> but i have no 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 but i have two talents that make me appear that way and are only useful for theoretical science, particularly astrophysics and writing. Okay. But they, but they work for those. I'm not sure they work for anything else, but one is I assimilate things quickly so I can learn stuff very fast. I won't necessarily retain it for years and years, like really smart people. Yeah. But like, if you give me almost anything, I can figure it out very, very quickly, which is useful when you're getting data or yeah. you're trying to design a new world, you know, writing wise, and I'm a good pattern solver, you know, and so again, I can take disparate ideas and put them together, which works great in theoretical physics. And it works great. in writing. <laughs> and neither of those things actually makes me particularly smart, like real smart people, but it looks like I am. But it's great <laughs> for those two fields. So I, I left into the two things that you know, my skill set actually worked for.
1: And and it's a great major to uh, say that you do. Uh, I'm an astrophysicist.
0: (laughs) It's come in handy occasionally when, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. Someone's trying to call in, unfortunately, my manager, but I'm not going to go over there. (laughs) But it's coming in in meetings in Hollywood. It's been useful because you can kind of beat people over the head when they try to spring science on you or like, well, you wouldn't understand this. And it'd be like, really? really <laughs> you and your soft sciences you're trying to bring you know child psychology and yeah 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 i can do that
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so how hardcore is the was the math for being an astrophysicist
0: oh it was i love applied math theoretical math makes no sense to me that's like some other language okay can't makes no sense i mean that's all proofs yeah like how you oh that stuff's insane but applied math that's perfect That's all you know, calculus and, you know, linear algebra and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that, that stuff makes sense. Tensor, you know, calculus was great because that's all field space stuff, which I was interested in. So it's, that all makes sense. Theoretical math, not a clue.
1: See, uh, at school from time to time, even though I, I teach English at the school, for an elective, I get to dabble in astronomy. So I do a kind of astronomy as as, as an elective, and I enjoy it. And I get to pretend that I, that I have a good idea what I'm talking about. So it's it's kind of fun in that. Way. <laughs> I get to live out my dream of uh, being an astrophysicist or an astronomy uh, astrono- astronomer from time to time.
0: <laughs> it's it's. But I like amateur astronomy too. What happened was I got back into it about eight years ago. Didn't realize it was kind of a childhood dream. Yeah. And now I do astrophotography when I get the chance. On on you know, new moon weekends. So I go up to a place where you can see the Milky way and hang out with a bunch of people who come from all around and, and take pictures. That so sounds, that's been kind of a fun thing.
1: That sounds so awesome. The, the, where do you um, publish the pictures?
0: I, they're just for me and friends and stuff like and Mostly for me. You know, Cause it was all the things I couldn't do as a kid mm. because with film, you couldn't do crap and you couldn't track except by hand. Now you got, you know, computers will track for you with, you know, cameras or the mount itself and digital chips are fantastic for you know because you can just stack hours and hours of short exposures and suddenly you've got great stuff and then you go in and use you know computers to to clean everything up and it's it's wonderful so that's my new hobby my old new hobby
1: (laughs) that does that sounds absolutely awesome now why did you when did you decide i don't want to be this i'm going
0: to focus on writing I was doing my first novel in college, a novel called Travail. And also I was writing live action feature scripts with a buddy during the summers. Cause he was down here going to UCLA. And at some point I had a particular cosmological theory, you know, about how space works, but I knew I'd need like five years more of math. Mm. And, and it was like, do I really want to devote five more years just to do this thing? Which pro- still seems to be right. Yeah, you know, which is a weird <laughs> thing. They keep coming up with stuff, and I go, I did that back then. This is really crazy. I should probably hook up with someone who can do the math, but I never got around to it. But but it was just at a point where it was like, eh, let's try writing it. It seems like you make more money, <laughs> and it was just what I, I would. It would have been interesting to go the other way too. So so you know, uh, no regrets, but it was you know. So so what was my dad. The- so so,
1: Sorry, what, so, what was this theory, the the cosmological theory that you had, if or if you can share it?
0: Oh no, it's it's just that that space, all of space, is a seven dimensional super planar. and and it means you have three dimensions that we know of, fourth dimension, which people call time, but you know if you're doing general relativity, and then three other inverse dimensions, and if you work out what Einstein was doing based on Minkowski space it becomes a seven dimensional Minkowski space. It just does everything comes out of it. Like all the constants of the universe fell out of it. Like they should, it was kind of like, well, this works. And I talked to some grad students, you know, who who I was friends with and they looked it over and they were kind of like, yeah, this kind of works. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I was not the person who coined the term superplanar. It was actually uh, a grad student buddy who went, yeah.
1: So as you said, there's the three dimensions that that we know un- under our space. And we definitely and there's time. In what form do these other three dimensions exist as? Well, they're actually
0: inverse, mathematically inverse. So you know how you, one of the other th- aside from the seven dimensions and the and the three extra being inverse mathematically. You know how you say you know how you go cut things smaller and smaller and smaller until you get whatever, you know, it's that like game everybody plays. Well, if yeah. you cut it down, then you get atoms. If you cut that, you get that. Well, there's also a binding force, which is, so I, I posited that there's also inverse, you know, there's the inverse square rule where, where things, depo- you know, get all energies, all types of energies you get less at one over R squared. But I posited the reverse at that at subatomic levels. So that at some point they're equal and that's where energy and matter are. And so if you dig into that, it becomes this, there's this something called inverse gravity that comes out of it mathematically. And so it's the exact opposite of gravity. When you try to pull it apart, it gets stronger. Okay. And so there's, there's a fine. And so between those two things, one, that it's a seven dimensional structure to the universe, unlike string theory, which sucked from the beginning. <laughs> it, anyways, but this is all just BS. We're just talking. Yeah. So, but I had done all the math. I still have my original pieces of paper, which is kind of funny. If I had a whiteboard, I could show you easier. But <laughs> well,
1: uh, I'm sure if you showed it to me on a whiteboard, it would not make one lick of sense to me. <laughs> oh no, no,
0: it actually did. I, I, when I was working on Lazy Town in Iceland. For some reason, someone asked me about it, and I ended up spending a lunch explaining it to a bunch of people. They were like, oh, that makes sense. And I went, yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and now someone's going to hear this, rip me off, call it something else, and they'll get their Nobel. <laughs> and that's cool. I just wish they'd at least give a nod to me.
1: <laughs> well, like I said, if we have any fans of, of the podcast who's also astroph- um, astrophysicists, that'd be fantastic, in my opinion. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure they're looking at something way more complicated than my podcast, or our podcast.
0: You never know. <laughs> Speaking of which, we haven't even gotten anything yet. We've just been uh, riffing. I, I know. You're <laughs> editing.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm sure a lot of us will say, because like I said, I find it all fascinating. But as we're about to move into some of what we're writing until we eventually get to Max*, which will be the, the bulk of our conversation. So your first screening, screenwriting job was the challenge of the GoBots. Right. So this, as you said, this position, you basically walked in and they were like, hey, yeah, give this one a shot. Or what stage was GoBots at that point?
0: They were just starting out some of the writing. And so I was just one of the writers they brought on. They were nice enough to do that. And and it's just action. And, and I'd been doing live action type of stuff. I'd had some things option, And, and the similarity between feature films and animation action stuff is is almost one-to-one because you're basically, in both of them, you're being very visual. It's not like sitcoms, which is a whole different monster. You know, but if you think visually for a live action film and you think action and movement, it's the same thing in something like Gobots or I think I did some Johnny, you know Johnny Quest when there a revival I did there, and you know it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm just writing action, I'm just writing stuff that came naturally to me. so that was pretty easy.
1: so when Gobots came out, there's also also another well-known show called Transformers. Was there a rivalry felt between? on the team or was it just we're doing our thing Hasbro's doing its thing or you know did you guys feel kind of it or I think what film, eight, I can't remember who did Transformers the art actually but did, did you guys feel like you know this this is our thing and they're ripping it off I mean what happened there
0: no I, I I think everybody knew it was just a toy you know they were both toy things I mean this was I never felt there were other th- I mean I was just starting off what did I care I was just getting gigs I didn't even think in those terms and and it was all freelance work so it wasn't like I was on staff when I went to Disney later, I, had a, I was much more aware of what competing shows were doing, you know, because we'd get ratings and we'd see what we were up against. But as a freelancer in the beginning, I was just trying to get scripts. So I wasn't, they may have been, but, you know, I didn't know.
1: Well, later, with, as you said, with Disney, you co-created Tailspin as well, which is another fantastic show. What led you to reimagine the Jungle Book like that?
0: Well, I was working on Way of the Pooh, and the, and the person who hired me there was Jim Magon. He was a story editor on Gummy Bears, and that was the first thing I did for Disney. Is I did a a freelance script, of Flint Shrubwood. It was, anyways, it was an Eastwood, you know, rip off kind of thing parody for for the Gummy Bears. And then he hired me on staff, and and it was funny you mentioned the GoBots because I think I sent in a GoBot script as a spec, and he, I mean, I remember him later going. I actually thought it was funny, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen. And, you know, that sort of thing. So I went, Oh, okay. So I was doing, I was, I was working with Carl gears. We were, we were doing Winnie the Pooh and Jim had gotten off of gummy bears and he was very tied in with the head of a uh, television animation. who he was head of all of television. I think at that time, Gary Kreisel, and they had needed, something they were ducktales was already going and they needed something for what would become the disney afternoon and they were looking for an original show and they said you can use all our people but you can't use any of the main ones like mickey or you know that kind of stuff at that point in time so he 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 had designed a show called b players which was short for bit players that used all the sort of secondary disney characters and it was kind of like they were like out of work actors you know working <laughs> on the lot trying to get gigs that kind of a thing yeah and so he had pitched it to Eisner and Katzenberg and it didn't fly but he had liked you know some of the characters like Blue, and he had called me in and said we've got three I got three days to come up with a show to pitch can you help so we had like a three-day weekend type of thing and we came up with Tailspin and we had been you know, there's Indiana Jones and Tales of the, the Gold Monkey, and there were a number of things, sort of, you know, it wasn't like a completely original idea, but that sort of action adventure kind of thing. And those characters fit perfectly because it was, they were sort of of that time, that feel. So, so uh, that's where it came from.
1: That's very cool. Uh, oh, by the way, just to go back to uh, GoBoss, I guess GoBoss is res- getting a kind of like a renaissance now. It's being published as a, as a comic book through IDW <laughs> Publishing now. So I just thought that was kind of a weird thing. <laughs> but I guess these ideas never die. And the cool thing about Tailspin, when when you made it, you didn't set it in a modern age. You kind of set it back in the early days of aviation. What, why was right. that? Why was that important?
0: Again, we were we were influenced by what was around us, and and part of it was. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, part of it was Tales of the Gold Monkey, part of it there was another show. There was that the revival of the pulp fiction kind of things. And that sort of late 20s, early thirties, which is that action adventure, jungle. And then of course, Miyazaki, because La Puta Castle in the Sky had come out in that was 86. And there was a wonderful Japanese artist who would go back to visit his family and he'd come back with a Miyazaki film you know, in Japanese. And we'd all sit in, you know, one of the break rooms and we'd watch it. And I remember watching that. I was working on the, the mini series for DuckTales. It was me, Jim and Bruce Talkington. And, and Bruce and Jim were doing every other one. We'd all done the outline together and I was doing the even ones. They were doing the odd ones. And I had just finished my first draft of the second episode. And I saw my first Miyazaki thing, which was Laputa. And I walked away going, I got to, I got to destroy my script and start over because <laughs> someone's actually doing really good cartoons, Yeah, like really cinematic. Cause normally I'm just thinking, yeah, they're cartoons. And it was like, oh my God, this is filmmaking. It was like, like that opening scene. It was so beautiful. And I was like, oh my God, this is. A-. And so I threw away, I I deleted the whole script. And I started from scratch, <laughs> and I've been that way ever since. So Miyazaki, some, the flying stuff was always influential.
1: And the, the voice cast you had on that show is tremendous. I mean, you had Jim Cummings, Sally Struthers, Tony J, which uh, eventually uh, you have from Mighty Max. You have appearance Frank Welker shows up. I mean, you you have a, the, the cast of voices is amazing for Tailspin.
0: Oh yeah, it was it was it was the the best of the voice actors. Before we got too much into actor actors for the sake of their celebrity yeah now some of them are are superb when you can get them but a lot of times people would just go oh that person was great in that movie let's get them they're big stars and you know they never listen to if the voice will work or not but that was where i desperately wanted to get tim curry because i'd always been a big fan of his mm. and that's the first time tim curry had worked at disney as well on uh, the tailspin two-parter unfortunately he was forced to do a german accent which i didn't <laughs> want but you know so but yeah, no, great cast. And Jimmy, Jim Cummings, you know, I, I tr- he was like my good luck charm. I would put him in everything, even if it was just, you know, for a minute, just because, you know, from poo on, he was just, he's so wonderful to work with. And and Rob, too.
1: It's, it's kind of funny. I was talking to Billy West on Saturday on, on, you know, on the podcast, the voice actor from Futurama and a few other things. And he said the same thing about voice acting that I made the comment about the difference between the, the celebrity voice actors and the actual voice actors lo- like Billy West, Jim Cummings, and Rob Paulson, stuff like that. And, it, and, and the, the value of having the true actors as part of it.
0: Oh yeah. And, and it's the nice thing about voice actors is you can get multiple voices, you know, you yeah. can call when you need some strange little voice in the middle of a show, you can get one, you know, also I've seen them do some miraculous things. You know, well, I, I had to do, I had to redo a line like nine months later and Jim Cummings remembered the line yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and how he had done it the first time. It's like, Oh, okay. And I saw Paul Winchell <laughs> do something even more amazing when I was uh, recording him for a poo episode, he did something amazing too. So yeah, they, they get pretty, pretty, ins- they're like half musician, half actor, <laughs> you know, in that way.
1: Yeah. Jim Cummings is also, awesome. we actually had him on the show. Oh, going back maybe four months ago. And he, he's, he's tremendously nice. we also had uh with Paulson and those are some incredible people. There's, Something about voice actors—they just seem to have that great personality, and for some reason, no ego.
0: <laughs> and and that's the wonderful part. I mean, I mean, part of it is they don't have to get dressed up at you know five a.m. and get makeup on and stuff like that. And and it's you know it, it's it's much more comfortable. You know, their craft is in their voice, and you know their ability to act. So it's it's just there's not a lot of how you look involved. I've had a couple of people be weird, but they were live action people. <laughs> <laughs> so, it,
1: it, am I guessing correctly that a lot of the casting from Mighty Max came from experiences
0: in Tailspin? Little, I mean, again, Rob came on Gummy Bears at the end of the second season. He was he became a Gummy Bear, so that's the first time I heard Rob. And Tony J, I had in mind as soon as I was developing Mighty Max and uh, so he I had in mind and Rob I had in mind right from the beginning I didn't even audition anybody else and then Tim I had in mind if I could get him you know and then Richard came out of the casting the, the woman and I wish I could remember her name but she was you know it, her job is to sort of say hey what about this actor what about this actor you know and then give me give me you know their reels and I could listen to them and and she said uh what about Richard and I went What a great idea! He's great, you know. I'm thinking night court, you know, and I never would have (laughs) thought of him. And he was such a sweetheart. What a good guy! He was so much fun. I
1: mean, and also, also on 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 Tailspin, you had uh, Frank Welker too, who's also amazingly famous as well.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I I mean, we're so fortunate to have such great people to work with. You know, I mean, they're great people now. I mean, people who have come up, and and they're all still there too. Jim and Rob and them. and But, you know, just a lot of talented people.
1: So that now we get to talk about the show that I, that I really want to discuss, which is Mighty Max. How did that happen? Because Mighty Max started off, my understanding, as a toy line. Was it Polly Pocket or something along those lines?
0: Yeah, it was Bluebird, which is a British company. It was a father-son who I met because they came into uh, L.A. a couple of times. They're very tall.
1: <laughs> so, so. How did that come out when someone looked at the Polly Pocket line, decided to make a toy called Mighty Max, I guess, from the Polly Pocket line, which I don't know very much about Polly Pocket, but it, it is what it is. And then someone decided, hey, this would work perfect on television.
0: Well, I think every, well, there were two parts to it. It was brought in by Rob Hudnut. Now, Rob had worked at Mattel, and I believe he's been back at Mattel for a while. But he had he had spun off from Mattel, and he wanted to do some producing of things. And, you know, got, got the itch to, to come, you know, do Hollywood instead of just Mattel. And he knew the bluebird people. And I think he kind of shepherded, I'm not sure if he went to them or they knew him or how it worked exactly. I have forgotten, but Rob brought it and Phil of film Roman hooked into it. It was his production company and uh, Phil's great. And another tall person. And so was Rob. (laughs) I'm like six two and I've played a lot of basketball but I felt like a point guard around these guys. I was like the littlest that never happens to me, but yeah, it was, but so I believe that's how it came there. And then it came to film Roman and I had done a previous series crow with film Roman. And I think I wrote a Bobby's world. I was sort of in between stuff and Phil came to me and asked if I wanted to develop it. And I sort of looked at it. And one of my shows growing up, I liked was Johnny quest. And I was kind of like, I'd like to do my Johnny quest, you know? Yeah. And so when I looked at it, I went, can I make this kid be real? Cause to me, Johnny quest was great. The kid, the kids were actually the stars as opposed to, you know, how the, you know, Robin's never the star it's always Batman. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's like, can, so can this kid be real? And so I said, can I design a kid that can be courageous, but not an idiot? <laughs> you know who would run away when the odds were against him because isn't that what you want you know no one would stand there and go yes i'm going to stand and go up against this giant you know 70 foot tall villain it's like no i'm out of here so that was that was how i started to get into it so since
1: i am actually was not familiar with the original line of mighty max I, I knew him almost entirely from the tv show did norman and virgil exist in the toy line at the time
0: i I think Norman might have. I, I'm pretty sure Virgil was mine. And now again, it's been a long time and I don't remember much. I mean, I, I couldn't use much of anything from the toy line. I know Hmm. he kind of went through portal kind of maybe, but why was he wearing a hat? So I had to figure out how this hat was actually You know, this metaphysical object that changed its form depending on the culture it was in. And it was a gateway to these portals that the Lemurians had designed, you know, 10,000 years ago. And you have access to them and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that wasn't anything in the toys. So,
1: so you know, I had to... Sorry, go. So why couldn't you you use anything from
0: the toy line? No, I I did. It was just... You know how it is. Toys don't always make sense. Yeah, (laughs) true. My job was to make sense of it. And so... I needed some sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, Yoda character, you know, it's a, it's a mentor, it's a sensei, it's whatever. But again, I didn't want it to be Yoda, you know, cause a lot of people have done that mm. and I, you know, I'm not really into that. I mean, yes, he, he fills that hole, but he was also this very different personality. And then of course, since Max himself, he's heroic, but he's not necessarily a great fighter, nor did I see him becoming one. I needed some sort of guardian, and that's where Norman came from. And again, I, I don't know. You'd have to look at the original toy line. I'm pretty sure Virgil Virgil was original. I think Norman may have been there. And then we came up with some new stuff, too, as we went along, and they they sort of filtered that into the toy line. How about Skullmaster? Was he from the toy line, or is he yours? Skullmaster uh, skull was. But again, I had to figure out what, it, what he was and what his, his backstory was and what his goals were. And, of course, I had Tim in mind you know, cause he's got that great voice. And finally I could unleash the Tim Curry. I I've known all those years <laughs> you know, from Rocky horror to what was it? What's the Tom Cruise one that was terrible, but, but Tim was great legend.
1: Oh, legend. Oh. Yes. Yes. I, I totally yeah, yeah, forgot yeah. about that. He was the devil.
0: Yeah. Oh, he was so good. He was good. The rest of the movie just not good, <laughs> but he was, and, and they did a great job with the makeup and everything. He was so good and and so i have to say i was influenced by that quite a bit so <laughs> <laughs> I but mean, just the role <laughs> i mean like i said i mean just the
1: actors that you brought together for i mean even uh richard mole as well as i mean once again a phenomenal actor um as norman that that was some heavy talent that you got and i mean how did you get i mean like tim curry how did you convince him to do a, a tv series like that a, car- a cartoon because he was a movie star at that point
0: yeah and uh, Small funny story if you if you have time on that Definitely one. But, do. but it's surprising how many people who aren't movie star movie stars will do animation because, again, like I was saying before, you don't have to put makeup on. You don't have to dress up. It's a lot of fun. You know, I think if we tied someone down. Now, Tim was about to work on the Disney Three to Musketeer movie, if that sounds right. It, it, I think that's – and he was in Italy getting fitted because they were going to shoot some stuff over there. And I had to record him over the phone lines, which I've done before. Fiedler, when I I had him as Piglet on Pooh, sometimes he'd be in New York the whole time. So we'd do it over the phone. The problem, what normally happens, though, is you're hooked right in to the booth. So you can direct like you normally would. You just can't see your actor, right? Mm. Well, this was Fellini's studio. I know that because Tim was very excited about that. And they didn't have it tied in directly. So the engineers who did not speak English and Tim, who spoke pidgin Italian, sort of. <laughs> so he's in the booth. They'd hold up the phone. So I'd talk to him through a phone to their microphone. Then he'd tell them what I wanted them to do. It was this crazy thing where it was like a, it was a literal game of telephone over the telephone. But it was it was it was it was insane. But uh, yeah, I mean, but he was already into that. So he could do both at the same time. It's not like he was dedicating, you know, weeks or months of his life like he would on a movie. And so you get a lot of people like that who just want to have some fun and they have some downtime and they do it. Or in Tim's case, no downtime, but he had already committed.
1: (laughs) I mean, when you think of a a movie star like Tim Curry doing a cartoon, you you would assume that like your vision of what it would be like to be with, you know, with um, someone like Tim Curry, that there would be a lot of ego involved, that he would be difficult. It what kind of, what what
0: was he like on set? Tim, Tim was lovely. Tim was always courteous. And I'm sure he was the same way in live action shoots. You know, I, I, he just, he was a pros pro. The only time he ever pushed back at me and I respected him, you know, I mean, I was trying to get a certain scream out of him, a really loud thing. And at one point he went, I'm not doing another thing. <laughs> okay. I gotcha. Okay. That's the old, but, th- but that's fair. That's fair. He's got to protect his voice and he knows more, you know, about where he is on that. But no, lovely. Just a gentleman, easy to work with, took direction. Well, not that there was much to direct with him. You know, he was usually spot on with everything. So, but he took my explanations. Well, let's say <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's awesome. And, and and I think the one thing I one of the things I love about Mighty Max as well, once again, are the characters and that, that you created. I mean, the, especially the main three, Max, Virgil and Norman. And I think as you were talking about Mighty Mighty Max and how you focus on making him realistic, I think what made him so um, extraordinary is that he did feel like a kid. And at the same time, though, you do put in enough elements to make him, at least to make it make sense that he's going to be this chosen one, the mighty one, you know what I'm saying? And was was that a hard line to walk to make sure that he is definitely a kid? At the same time, you have this genius uh, Virgil and this super warrior from, you know, Throughout history, you know, he has, you know, Beowulf and, all, and all these other great heroes, and he's taking orders from the kid. Is it hard to balance that to make it work and make sense?
0: What you have to design characters to be able to get to the goal you want, and at least I do. So, if you want a certain type of character, you know, that can do those things, he's certainly courageous, he's not stupid. He's a smart ass, because I like smart asses. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he's also not mean-spirited about it. So you design this character and then you just wind him up and let him go. Virgil has to has to help Max because he is the mighty one. He is the chosen one. But since Max has a good heart, it's okay. And Norman respects him for his, he's heroic, even if he doesn't want to train hard, you know, or do any of that stuff. He at least recognizes Max's courage. And so Once you create these characters, they just work with each other, just like humans. You know, you're, you're trying to design little human beings, shorthanded, you know, human beings. And, and so once you wind them up, it's, it's like, well, yeah, Max will act this way. And, you know, he, he can be a pest, you know, but he's not doing it because he's an a-hole. He's doing it because that's who he is. You know, he's not mean. So it, it's not hard once you set up the characters to be who they are and then you just let them run.
1: So how far ahead in the, in the show had you planned? Like, did you, did you have a two, three, four year goal with Mighty Imagine how you were going to develop him as a character?
0: Back then you didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) It really was. Every episode was a standalone, you know, it was a little bit later or maybe around that time that anime, well, live action started to get into season arcs and multiple season arcs you know but then that filtered down it, it's commonplace now but it wasn't there at that time they wanted every episode to be able to be shown out of order nowadays it would be a different story and and I wish the only one we had planned and we screwed it up was the last episode of the first season the magnificent 7 and and we screwed it up because we made the I made the I let the script be too long Ken Pontek wrote it we were together on figuring it out you know how it should go It was a really good one, and I just let it get too long, and then it got cut afterwards. I should have cut earlier. But that was a beautiful script, the original.
1: Well, it's it's kind of funny that you were talking about that because the next thing I was going to discuss is The Magnificent Seven, which I must admit, personally, I did love the episode. I thought it how Mighty Max interacted with all the other great heroes was a great way of showing him how he does develop as a leader himself. And I think you did a great job of developing a world in which these characters can exist. And I, th- I thought it was a great script. I mean, I really did enjoy it.
0: I appreciate it. And, and Ken did a wonderful job, but those there's a story in tailspin that has not similar to that, but I, I like something with deep heart to it. Sometimes something that has a little sadness to it. It's just, they've all, those stories have always attracted me. You know, the thing where it's not just loud, but there's soft moments. And, and that was one where it was like, you're going to see these heroes of yours die. You know, how do you, how did that, that is going to grow you up kid to a certain <laughs> extent. Cause up until that point, you know, and then the fact the butterfly comes back at the end, which is probably the reincarnation you go, okay, that, that gives you that little smile, that little bit of, but you know, the poignant smile at the end when you go, okay, it's not completely gone, but, but it should have been a two-parter. I just feel really awful because it, it was beautifully laid out and and I didn't recognize it quickly enough what was going on but yeah it's it's if you can bring some heart to it somewhere that to me always makes it the better piece.
1: Was there any consideration that it could have been a two-parter at some
0: point? I think maybe if I had thought about it early enough I could have brought it up but at the time you're going a million miles an hour on these things <laughs> you know everything's happening at once you're going along and again, this is not the time period where you were thinking in season arcs and you were thinking in small multiple episode arcs like we do now, if so, I would have made it a, you know, it would have been a two parter automatically because it was the final season thing. It would have been perfect. But at that time, it was just the last episode and I wanted to do something to end it. That was really you know strong. So, you know, it was already done by the time it was, there was no chance to make it a two parter at that time.
1: Well, the, the one interest, interesting about that episode, and I'm part of a, on the Facebook, group, there's a Facebook group uh, de- dedicated to Mighty Max, and I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you, and I, I, people, some people gave me some questions, and it did connect to what you just mentioned. There's a gentleman called Thaddeus Zimmerman who asked a good question, so I, I wanted to use it. Were there any concerns of facing censorship over the subject matter? And when you look at Magnificent 7, you do have a lot of, I mean, there's death, which seems to be shied away from in a lot of modern television where you know you have characters being thrown off bridges and then you just see them like somehow surviving and moving around i mean was there any pushback to the fact that characters on mighty max often just died
0: i only heard about that later i was not thinking about it and i'm sure if we were on some network somewhere i would have been a different series but it was just it was the type of show it was that was a show i wanted to do i wasn't trying to be i wasn't trying to glorify it or anything like that it's just I believe, you know, evil people should die to a certain extent. You know, I I mean, we're humans. It's a different story, you know, where we, that, but, but true evil. Well, I don't have a problem with that. You know, I'm not sure why the, you know, Max would, you know, now someone, he knows something happens and that's going to hit him hard. But I also think some of those things are important to tell as well, you know, if you can. So I would have fought for some of them. Other shows, it, yeah, I it would have been axed on, but for whatever reason, we just didn't get any problems.
1: Well, the thing I find kind of amazing is the idea or the view of violence in kids' shows. The reason, the thing that always surprises me is that I would think if you were a censor, I'd be more nervous about a, seeing a character, let's say, get thrown off a bridge, like or like on Batman animated series, where you know these massive accidents are happening, and the characters just kind of get up and walk away, versus the repercussions of something actually dying. You would think that someone showing the actual repercussions of an action is something is a better message to show than, you know, let's throw a kid off someone off a building. that somehow still like bouncing off a weird thing on a building, you know, and
0: somehow surviving, you know, you know what I'm saying? Oh, no, I, I've fought that fight for years. I have multiple times and particularly in later, I did a, a Calamity Jane series and I wanted to do an anti-gun story, but they wouldn't let me use guns. I was trying (laughs) to argue, you can't do an anti-gun story to show how awful things are if you can't show the thing that's awful, (laughs) you know, so, and, and I've fought those battles before and I'm with you and, and although consultants don't always agree with me, I think psychologists do. You know, that that although I think sometimes they they do say that sometimes there's possibility of becoming immune to violence if it's too much. But I also believe right place, right time and what the reaction of a character is, is all important, because how the characters react is how the audience will react. If they're horrified, then the audience will learn to be horrified from it. Yeah, it's a tough one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. I mean, I think the idea that kids get desensitized to violence on TV I'm thinking they get desensitized to violence on TV if there's no repercussions for it. You know, when you see Max's reaction to those heroes dying, you get a sense of the, you know, you get a sense of the pain from it. You get a sense of this issue has real weight to it. And I think that has, that gives it, you know, it's has important, I think that's, the, and that be, makes it non-desensitizing.
0: I agree. Others don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I always try to do it, you know, when, when possible, if it's warranted
1: yeah well and the other interesting about mighty max as well is that you also do deal with some occult themes in this in the story which also i guess nowadays would be would have been probably frowned on and i I do wonder do you think mighty max could have been made at all
0: now at least in the same way i'm not sh- i'm not sure it could have been made then i just think it was a <laughs> confluence of fortunate things where it was on how it was syndicated, whatever it was no one bothered me and and I didn't even think about it. I, the question the gentleman asked years later was pointed out to me. And I was like, boy, we got away with a lot of stuff. And again, Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to get away with anything. I know a lot of people try to get away with stuff. I'll do whatever is required. You know, if someone says I can't do something, I'm not going to try to be cute. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but we never got bothered, and those were the stories I wanted to tell. I, I do think I could have done a much better job on on some of the stories. I, I I've learned to be better at things than I was then. I, I uh, anyway. Well, that's why I never watch my stuff.
1: <laughs> well, well, one thing, like I said, I mean, going back and watching the episodes that I that I can watch and find as an adult, it does feel like it holds up quite well. I mean, not just the, I enjoyed the hell out of the opening theme too, which is just fantastic. <laughs> but I mean, it there's enough gravity on the show that it does carry on i think to adults and i think you did a a phenomenal job of doing that
0: well i i hope so we had good people like gary hartle who directed them at least my season he's sensational i had done some writing on tasmania before this and uh, he was one of the four directors and my buddy Art Catello was showrunner on that and and i'd go i need to find a good director that can do this and this he said check out gary you know he did some tasmanias you did you know type of thing and i went oh cool and we became good friends too from it. Gary's a really good guy, but he, he had a lot to do with that look and feel and making it work. So he should not be forgotten.
1: Well, like I said, it's just I think everyone involved definitely raised their game to making a very quality program. And there's a lot of stuff on the show. I mean, unfortunately, the show only lasted two seasons, but so did I mean so did Tailspin. And I it feels like that's kind of a kids' cartoon thing where shows just don't stay. They keep they seem to cut them after two, maybe three seasons. And I don't know if that's because of maybe the age groups that they're looking at for kids or, you know, they think after two or three years they've aged out of their show. But I mean, is there is there a reason beyond that? You think that these most a lot of cartoons, even like I said, even the ones that are considered legendary now, like Tailspin, are just kept so short lived.
0: Well, Tailspin was built to be that way. In syndication blocks, it was sixty five episodes you were aiming for. And if you look at bundles, you'd get what is it, thirteen? Yeah. 13, five seasons. So 13 episodes would be like, you know, when you were on Saturday morning cartoon, you get 13 episodes per season. You get five seasons, you get 65, you package that, and you get a syndication block. Disney was really the first to do real syndication blocks with DuckTales where they went away from the network and went straight to the syndicators, which is why the Disney afternoon was so big at that time. It was It was huge. And so they just did a 65 episode block. And they said, that's it. We're doing 65 because that's the number. So it really came from five seasons of 13 that you then packaged and sold to the syndicators. So that's why a lot of those things were like that. It has changed since.
1: Well, like I said, I, I do wish Mighty Max had, had lasted. I think it lasted 46
0: episodes. Is that correct? I was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I bailed after the first season because Oh no! I, I was stupid. I should have just stayed. But I was like, oh, let's go, let me move on to something else. I mean, I was doing bump in the night, I was doing super I was doing all these other things. And so I jumped from show to show. I'd start it off, I'd do a season. It's so dumb, you know. But I was already moving on to something else, which was, you know, so the rest of them I've never even seen or heard oh, wow. about. Well, you know, I heard there was some nice stuff done that Gordon did, but but I, you know, I, I was asked to write two by Phil of the new seasons independent of Gordon but I I made a really firm I basically said look I I don't want to look over Gordon's shoulders it's his show now you know story Mm. editing wise I said because I wouldn't want someone to do that to me someone gets off the show and then they're kibitzing on what I'm doing it's like (laughs) you have no freedom and so once I was done it's like hey man that's his show he can do whatever he wants to it you're never going to hear a peep from me and that's pretty much what happened But I heard he did some, you know, nice, nice episodes.
1: Oh, there's some great episodes in uh, season two, and how he wrapped it up was kind of interesting. He wrapped it up, at least the last episode of season two, as a restarting it back to where it was in the first episode of season one. It was kind of, it was kind of a very interesting circle how it set up. Cool. Yeah. So I mean, it was kind of, yeah. Basically, it ended up with Mighty Max going back to everything reset to the first episode of season one, only with Mighty Max, Virgil, and Norman being the ones who remembered that it ever happened season mm-hmm. two. So it's very interesting how it kind of came full circle. Another thing that was kind of interesting, I don't know if this was on, on your, it has been a while since I watched a lot of the episodes. I'll go into a little bit of that later, but Virgil is uh, as a Lemurian was introduced to being a mentor to Skullmaster. Was that always part of the plan for the character?
0: I'm pretty sure there were hints of that, that he, had, at least that there was some, something between the two. I'm not sure how far I took it in the first season, as far as thinking it through, but they certainly knew each other but it's whether he it was a mentor or not. That probably came later. Was there... uh, I think there's an advantage you have when you come into an already run show. You can actually look at everything and go, okay, how can I make this better? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, how,
1: as far as these characters' backgrounds, like Skullmaster and Virgil, how deep did you dive into what they, where they came from in preparing the show?
0: Um, I knew I should have looked at it, but I, I'm sorry. I didn't even think to. I can send you the Bible that'd be incredible I my original Bible. yeah 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 let me i'll have to dig it up provided i can find it but it should be somewhere it's not so old that i can't find it digitally usually i keep that stuff but yeah i y- you have to work out the world you have to work out the characters you have to work out their interaction because the world has these characters in them there should be some backstories uh, certainly we knew norman was sort of that you know michael moorcock eternal champion type you know, he, he had been these various incarnations and, and Virgil had been around, but he was probably Virgil. Obviously, you know, going back to Virgil from uh, Milton, it's the other one. Um, oh, um, Aeneid? Paradise Lost. Oh, Paradise Lost. Now, oh, okay. A, one of them has Virgil in it. And I always forget which one. Oh, uh, Dante's Inferno. Johnny's
1: Inferno. That's the yes, other one. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Of. Which is, it's one of my favorite all-time <laughs> stories of divine comedy. I absolutely love it. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>.
0: <laughs>
1: Fantastic uh, choice.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there was, you know, there's, you try to set up some mythopaic resonance. At least I try to. And then if I had worked on it more, I probably would have expanded, you know, in the second season, which was done anyways. But y- you have to give it some real grounding or, or you don't know what you're doing. And the other thing I started off with that was very evident, whether it worked or not, was I wanted to take stories we knew of, not that we did vampires, we did a werewolf, we did other things. And I wanted to take myths and mythical creatures and retell them. Like we did a cyclops, but it wasn't like anybody would normally do a cyclops. Mm. You know, it was like, I wanted to take those stories and see if there was another way to tell that story. Now, some of them were just somewhat retakes, but there was always something a twist to each. And again that's where Maxificence 7 came from because it was like I know all these legends, if we put them together what would the story be? How would they interact? And that probably goes back to that original Star Trek one where Spock and Kirk or you know they have like Abraham Lincoln oh, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> I you that know. One. <laughs> But I always liked that one because it was like yeah what happens if you get to meet your heroes and fight with them? Yeah, You know, like, how cool would that be? But also they're, you, they you—they become humanized, too. You know, so there's a little bit of that, too. But uh, but yeah, you're always trying to build a foundation.
1: I, I must admit, when I, I did see that episode. Um, my father is a big Star Trek fan, and I did watch the episode. And I always thought to myself, I mean, I get having Abraham Lincoln as a great leader. I don't think I ever saw him <laughs> as a great fighter. <laughs> I don't think I ever thought to myself, I wonder what Abraham Lincoln is in, like, in a boxing match or something like that. You know, that part was always a little surprising for me.
0: Well, he's a big guy, and he was a woodsman, so, you know. It's, it's possible. I think, uh, whoever wrote it probably went, yeah, he probably was. Because when he's young, he looks like a pretty sturdy guy.
1: Mm. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it was perfect, but I like the idea behind it.
1: Right. I mean, it, it works. You know? It's one of those things that it works well, as long as you don't think too deeply and just enjoy <laughs> it. It works just fine. <laughs> right. So, with Norman, as you said, he said, he knew Beowulf. He'd been around for a long time. How deep did? were you planning on going into the why of it like why was he able to live that long and be you know for, with that history
0: I hadn't wanted to delve in the first season into that I, I, I assume both Virgil and Norman were some sort of eternal creatures for whatever reason mm. there's whether it's because they're not quite of our realm obviously Lemurians are different what Norman was hard to say, or maybe he was just a fluke. There was, I hate to say it's, there's a a wonderful, very, very quiet movie called the man from earth. I don't know. It's, I was surprised my kid liked it because he usually, he and I usually don't agree on anything, but it turned out he liked it. And I remember when I was first watching it, it's about a, a college professor who's having a good, a farewell party. He's leaving. He's been 10 years or something. And all of his friends who are professors and stuff are, are sitting around there drinking. And he starts to tell the story that he's been alive since like before Greece. Oh, wow. And all this stuff happens. And I remember watching it and it was, it's a beautiful little movie. And it's got Wilford Brimley of all people in it. And he <laughs> does a good turn. But but it's really this, this quiet, beautiful science fiction thing because it's more about thoughts. But I remember watching it and going, that's just like this old Star Trek from the original that I really liked. And I looked up the writer, it turned out it was the guy who wrote that original Star Trek <laughs> and he sort of modernized it. And then he died before it got produced, but he, he did sell it to the person, you know, you know, decades later and it all worked out, but you sort of, that feeling of eternal characters, whether it's just a tweak in the DNA or there's something more, that's how I felt about, you know, Norman. I don't know if he was magical or he just was someone who didn't die. Mm. You know, and it probably would have gotten into it more because there's something there's something vulnerable about not dying and being your the only one because everybody, you know, dies except you. And there was always a hint of that for Norman for me, although he had a goal. You know, he was a protector and he was a great warrior. But the times you see him reminisce with with people from his past who knew him, you get that feeling there was some there's more to him than that.
1: Well, I think one of my favorite episodes that on on Mighty Max, is the Norman Conquest episode, which I thought was a brilliantly well-done episode uh, that which you provided the story on. And you, revealed, you did reveal a great vulnerability to Norman. Not only did you create a connection with his father, but you also created a villain that he actually is, and the only time you actually seem afraid of losing. Right. And I thought that was a brilliant way of making your, the character of Norman vulnerable because beyond, before that point, you do get a sense that he is basically the Invincible Warrior. You don't really get to know him as an individual
0: and that that was the goal of it and i think that was a libby hinson one I could be wrong i,
1: I don't recall to be honest with you well I, when, I, when, when i read it yeah
0: <laughs> but but yeah it was it was it's always it's always about putting an obstacle that someone can overcome but just barely you know because it's like the problem with superman originally to me is always like well if someone has there's no courage there nothing mm. hurts him yeah, Batman's far more courageous because he might get killed. You know, there's <laughs> nothing, so you have to keep escalating, you know, obstacles for Superman if you really want it to work, you know, and that can be a problem. So, with, you know, with Norman, it was like, who can you find that could beat him? And then what does that do to him? What, what does he have to dig down to? And then we, I, if I recall correctly, we cast Brad Garrett early on before he went on Everyone Loves Raymond and all that other stuff. But, and he was huge. So his voice was huge too. It worked out beautifully from a physicality standpoint is is i don't know i think i've rambled a little too much on that one
1: no no i mean i, I find it fascinating because <laughs> like I, I do love the episode and i do think norman it, it's one of those things norman and virgil and max is just what seems like one of those shows sort of like a, like a tv show like firefly or something where you're like there should have been so many more seasons some <laughs> of a bitch it just stopped before you delve into the deeper stuff that i wanted to know about the characters
0: yeah it's always a fine line and and the problem with science fiction a lot of times in, in television form is the, the creators of the shows, it often looks like they have a great idea and they don't know where they're going. Like they peter out, you know, like yeah. whatever. And so you, you never get around or when they do finally get to the end and you going, really, that's your ending. You know, with movies, you got to have a killer ending or it just won't work at all. And so usually the writer has at least some ending. I don't know what I would have done if I had carried on. I would have found something, you know, but it, but I think I would have I might have done something about Max, Max Older. I might have given a hint to what he would become cuz that's more my way to see cuz I like to see what people turn into once they've learned things.
1: Well, I mean, since you had probably thought about what would Max became, what, what, like you said you, ne- you saw you said you never saw him as a warrior, what did you see him
0: becoming? Not a clue. I hadn't thought about it. <laughs> right. I know that sounds terrible. And I <laughs> and I apologize. People you know, I will occasionally run into people and get questions and they'll be like a tailspin thing. Well, so what happened to Kit? And, you know, did he ever, and I'm like, if you pay me, I'll, I'll figure it out. But I was just working, you know, I wasn't thinking that far ahead, but I, I never gave it a thought. I just know me. And I know that those sort of things intrigue me. So I probably would have wanted to have figured out where he went to, but I think he would have been a cool adult. He had a great mom, which was important to me, you know, have a parent that was not just a wacky idiot. Well, I, I did I did
1: like the episodes, I can't remember the name of it, the one where Max gets his hat stolen and the mother's in that. And you did a great job once again of creating a mother that does seem to be the mom of Max. Like you don't like it doesn't seem like well, how the hell did he come from her? It's like, well, no, she did seem totally capable as well. And I mean, you created a, a lot of characters around Max, excluding uh, Jiffy, who did seem to be really intelligent characters.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's me. <laughs> I, I can't watch things that have idiots. It's just really hard for me. I, I and especially people who do what I call butt itch moments, where they do something so stupid, you're screaming at the screen. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. it's like human beings wouldn't do that, but somehow the writers made them do that. You know, but but if you think about people, they're they're affected by their parents, and either they're pushing away from something they don't like, or they've been taught by good parents. You know, and, and they're, they're slightly molded by, you know, the good parenting. So it's, it seemed important to me to, to give him someone who, you know, w- was, you know, in her own way, a teacher for how he should act, mm. you know, as he, as he grew up.
1: I don't remember if they ever discussed what happened to the father. Am I correct
0: in that? I can't, re- I honestly can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's no problem. I, I, yeah, I, I do apologize. No um, worries. Yeah. I, I. I'd have to look it up. I, I I don't think he was dead. I think it was just kind of missing one of those things. I think we brought it up in one episode, but I, I honestly, I'm terrible at this stuff. But,
1: um, yeah. No, I totally understand. I mean, at least we're, we're going back maybe 30 years. Ooh, ooh, yeah, that hurts. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, as, when, I, when I watched it, I was a kid. Now I'm like 40 years old. Anyways, so another good question that a gentleman, Thaddeus Zimmerman, um, came up with, I wanted to ask you, uh, has to do with Tim Curry. Did the character of Skullmaster grow and take and or did the character change with Tim Curry getting that role? Did he make it kind of his own thing? Or was it always fought did it always follow the original intentions of
0: Skullmaster? That was always I wrote the whole thing with Tim in mind. So it was it was it was from the very opening. If you look at the opening script, you can see that he's pained. He's trying to dig to the surface. And of course, Tim does a great job. So he yeah. of course made it all a million times better. But it was always with his voice in mind and this, this desperately powerful creature. He just wanted freedom. He may have been terrible and do awful things, but he also desired things, you know. And so the the very opening of the very pilot, you know, bellwether in his cap or whatever it was. You open with schoolmaster and, and the 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 tone of Tim's voice to me says it all. That was what I was trying to get, you know, as he just wants out of here. He's not just an evil guy, you know, blah, ha, ha, ha-ing. he like, he wants to get on with his life, <laughs> you know, essentially. <laughs> and so, so it was kind of full blown from the beginning. Now, if I'd gone on with it, you know, and not been stupid, perhaps <laughs> there would have been more to it, but I, I just can't see a character that powerful having human nuance in the same way we would think about it, you know, certain driving forces, but I'm not sure nuance would have been, you know, really strong in that one.
1: Well, well. Once you have a character like Skillmaster, and you said because he wanted to be free, I can't help but think that once he's free, he would ev- he would just stop. I mean, he would be kind of a what was it? The whole thing he'd give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk, kind of thing. That he would have perpetually gotten, you know, worse, or would he have just been like, "Hey, I got what I needed, and he's done."
0: No, no, no. But it's it's his wants and the desires are on such a different scale. Gotcha. I mean, it really is more like Lucifer. Mm. You know, it's 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 however you want to take it not satan because that becomes more of a one-dimensional thing Mm. but it's really he would wipe out humanity because it doesn't they don't mean anything to him he's not trying to necessarily be mean about it he just he's his world revolves around him and and his powers and his desires and his wants and he's been trapped and so if ants come along if someone's caught in in prison and there are ants outside and he breaks out in the ant hill is destroyed in the breakout he's not going to give it much thought Mm. he just wants to get out of prison that's more how i saw him it's just he's not on the same level as humans they're just different things so yeah he might destroy the world when he gets out but it's not because he particularly hates everybody individually it's just in his way Mm. well i think another
1: great thing that you did on the show as well that i think it was important is that every episode ends with like sort of like a history lesson given by max how was that in because it you know, was, was that something you specifically wanted to make sure you're educating the viewers or that? Cause I know at the same time, was there something about if you needed to put some certain percentage of educational programming on to get a show on TV, something along, along those lines or.
0: Yeah, I think, I, I think it was something like that. It wasn't anything I would have wanted to have done. I mean, you know, I don't mind it, but I, yeah, I think that was just part of how we sold it. That part of it was going to have that little educational part. Cause back then, Educational parts were easier to get funding for or selling it or whatever. So nowadays it's about interpersonal stuff. You got to be good with.
1: Mm. So did, when we were making the episodes, did you ever think, what, I, what did I want to like either show or did the, the place of the history ever come before the story or did you do it come up with the concept first and then where can this take place? How did I want to work this into history?
0: Yeah. Figure out something interesting afterwards story always comes first. And then there's always something interesting. Like if you're in Scotland, then you do something about Scotland. If you're under the ocean, then you can, you know, I mean, it's it's easy to find something to do some historical or, you know, thing about or geographical thing about. So yeah, it was always afterwards.
1: And, and and it's kind of looking back like all these years later. And one of the things I, I, when I was trying, when I wanted to do some research for you and watch, and I was wanted to go back and watch all the, all the episodes. One thing I kind of bumped into, which was, in my opinion, an absolute travesty, is that you can't find the shows really anywhere. Almost, I mean, they're not on DVD, for as far as I can tell, or Blu-ray. And I'm trying. To, I mean, is do you know of like why that is? I mean, did it was is there an issue with copyright or?
0: Having a clue, but some of these sometimes things fall through the cracks. I'm not sure if this is my only show that that's happened to. It could just be me. People don't like me. But... Uh... <laughs> But yeah, it's it's sometimes that, that just, you know, because it was maybe a British company and then who had the rights here. And then, you know, sometimes that stuff happens. And, you know, there, there are, I've seen numerous series that that's happened to both live action and animation. And it's a shame, but unless you're part of like a Disney block or, you know, some people that have weight, then sometimes it's just hard. Now, as
1: the one who developed it for television, do you have part of ownership rights of the show? <laughs>
0: God no, this is no. animation. <laughs> we don't even have the writers guild. For God's sake, I'd, Seriously? I'd be so wealthy. Nah, nah. Wait. They they, they 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 I can't get into the politics of the screen cartoonist guild, but let's just say nothing, no residuals.
1: Holy crap, that's that sounds ridiculous. That's sounds fucking absurd. <laughs> yep. Tell me about it. Wow. I, I never I always thought writers were writers, and I figured they'd be they're always covered under the same umbrella.
0: Not animation writers. Because they're considered story people. Now, so, it's slowly kind of maybe a little bit changing, but nah. That, that's a, that's a
1: freaking insult, it sounds
0: like. <laughs> I'd buy and sell you. <laughs>
1: yeah. Wow, that's that's horrible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's You know, I got paid. That would have been nice because that's what people in the entertainment business work for is royalties and residuals because then you can retire on them. If you, if you make a hit, you know, get a hit song or whatever, then, you know, you can go quietly into the night now, you know, but it's not like I wasn't paid good money. There are a lot of people who make a lot less money for doing much harder jobs. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I don't want to sound whiny in that respect. I mean, I I'm whiny, but, (laughs) but I don't want to, you know, I, I, I have good fortune to, you know, get, you know, a lot of money to, to do these things, which are fun to do. So, you know but yeah it would have been nice
1: <laughs> i i would imagine so
0: <laughs> well
1: i mean the the one place i was able to watch some of the episodes even though i'm not associated with it at all there's a there's a, apparently something i found on youtube called the mighty max restoration project which apparently some guy i don't know some years ago i guess it's two or three years ago kind of refurbished its eight of the episodes from mighty max and kind of gave it like a um, hd look to it and sound wow yeah i mean I look at that yeah, it's under. Um, you gotta go to YouTube, look up the Mighty Max Restoration Project, and I was very happy to find it because I, like I said, the only place I found the Mighty Max was on YouTube, and the old episodes that they had um, that they showed on YouTube were, were very grainy looking, like you couldn't quite see the images quite well. So it's like almost like straining your eyes to like look at it. And then I found the Restoration mm-hmm. Project. I was like, oh shit, there's at least eight episodes that look as good as they would have on DVD. And as someone who is the writer for that show. How does it feel to know that they're a family fan so dedicated that they're doing things like this for mighty max?
0: Uh, I it's, it's flattering again. Like I said, I, I don't think in those terms in that, Oh my God, people must watch my stuff. How, you know, how great am I? You know, I, it just, it doesn't dawn on me. I, I do what I like. You know, I try to do something that I think is going to be good first and foremost. And I like, something that I'm going to like, like, would I want to watch this? Yeah, I hope so. You know, so, so that's it. And then the fact that people actually look at it and, you know, watch it and, and like it, it is, is just flattering. And, and it's, I think it's great, but you know, it's, it's, uh, that's why when someone like you asked me to come on, it's just more like, well, I got to thank everybody who watches because <laughs> I wouldn't have a career. So it's, it's, you know, seriously, it's, it's, it's just cool. You know, to I me, mean? and and not something that's usually in my brain.
1: Well, I I think you'd be surprised just how many fans of Mighty Max there are. There's multiple Facebook groups. There's one. The main one is the Mighty Max one. There's a Mighty Max toy Facebook group that just talks about the toy lines. I mean, there, there's definitely a very strong fan base for a show that, like I said, been off the air for almost uh, 30 years and has had no way of, i don't, I'm not of being. Are transporting to the current fan base because again there's no dvds no blu-rays no streaming and the fact that they it's all based on just pure memory of the show and what they saw on youtube i i mean it's it's amazing
0: i i remember seeing it wasn't this time but i think i i was interviewed once many years ago for this and i remember looking at the imdb page and i remember there were like Good reviews. <laughs> I think like <laughs> better reviews, like a better number than on any other series, a more famous series that I've worked on. It was like, and so I thought, well, the fans are cool, you know. I I, I dug that, you know. People really liked it, you know, at least there, because a lot of times you just get people who'll be like, oh, this sucks, yeah, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But it was like all the little things. I think I kind of read a few, and it was kind of like, oh, this is you know tickles me that that people liked it. That's that's really you know it's it's nice. It's nice that people do because that's you hope for that, but you never, you never know.
1: And I think a lot of that has to do with the way you wrote and developed the show that it never feels like it's talking down to you. There's so many shows on TV that feel like they're actually talking down to their audience or viewing their audience as, as simply just children. And it's just, you know, just crap happening, you know, silly humor, silly storylines. It felt like you literally took your audience and, view them as intelligent and you challenge them a little bit with your story?
0: Well, that's the point. I mean, I, I, again, I, I want to do something I'd want to watch if possible. Certainly if I'm running the show, you know, sometimes you're just put on something and you don't have a whole lot of choice. So you just make it as good as possible. But when you have a choice to put, you know, when you're developing something, you have a chance to put something into it of yourself and, And so you're, I don't like stupid characters. You Just (laughs) don't. And I, I, I don't believe children or adults of any age should be talked down to because it's, it's you, everybody thinks that kids are stupid. They're not stupid. They're just as smart as they're going to be when they're adults. They just have a limited context. Mm. So they're, You know, there are certain things you probably wouldn't talk about. Like, you know, for for younger kids, you're not going to talk about sex because they won't know what it is. And if they do, they've been abused, and that's something else again. Right, right. You know? But essentially, but you can still talk about smart things because they're just as smart then as they're going to be later. They don't get smarter. They just get more information and more context. So that's how I always approach everything.
1: Has there ever been any discussion or did you at any point of – might it match returning to television or in comic book form or you know did did that ever get discussed after the the second seasons or looking back at it
0: i i don't know and i can i would almost bet my life savings that i wouldn't be a part of it (laughs) why because that doesn't seem to be the way i have never been asked back once on one show on a version a cg version of of winnie the pooh they asked me to help write some because they were I think it helped them to have the guy who was one of the showrunners on the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh to help them get started. And then they dumped me after the first season, <laughs> but I've never been asked back to do any Winnie the Pooh movie or anything or any other series. If there is a tailspin remake, I will not be asked back. <laughs> and it's, and, and I'm not, it sounds like I'm being bitter. I, I more just think that I can write better than anybody else. Right, right. So it's kind of like, at least give me a chance You know, it's not even that it's my baby and I only see it one way. Now I understand because they want other viewpoints. So I'm not, I, I, it's not something I I lose any sleep over, but I, I just think they always go, well, it's new. We want new people, but it always seemed like, but are you missing talent? Mm. You know, it's like, it's not that I'm going to you know, arm wrestle you to make it old, but it's like, just. I'll use another name and see if my script is better than somebody else's. You know? <laughs> so that's just, but I, am just saying, it's not the way of the world usually to get, you know, like DuckTales didn't go back to any of the Ducktail people and that, and there are some great people on that. And if yeah. they do rescue Rangers, they're probably not going to go back to the original people. And that's just the way it is. I just think you're missing some talented people when you do that.
1: Would you support a return to of Mighty Max? Of course.
0: You know, I, if people like it, then you know it's as good or better than anything else they can bring back, you know. And I think it would hold up well. It's certainly, you know, a type of thing that that doesn't date too much, you know. It, it was it was of it it was of its time, but it was modern, you know. So if you did it nowadays, Max wouldn't be much different. He'd have an iPhone,
3: <laughs> True. you know.
0: But <laughs> but I don't think he'd be different, you know, his musical tastes or his musical. T- you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. like. There's not much to change. He's not like back to the future. You know, Marty McFly really was into the eighties.
1: Right. right. <laughs> oh God. I hope they don't do something that they ever brought it back to be like Mighty max, but instead of a hat, he uses his iPhone to port- use portals. I'll be like, no, no, it's not. It's, not, it's the damn hat for God's sakes. <laughs> well, th- thank oh. you. Thank you so much, sir, for talking with me. It was, it's definitely a pleasure. Like I said, I love mighty max drawing up. I enjoyed going back and watching all the episodes again. They, they were phenomenal.
0: Oh, thank you, and and thank you for having me on. This is, you know, it's always eye opening that, that people like this stuff. So I, I I'm appreciative.
1: Well, I, I hope when your new shows come start airing, I hope you definitely uh, choose to come back and talk about, especially the secret, confidential thing that you mentioned. I,
0: I definitely <laughs> got to find out what that is. <laughs> no, I I have signed contracts. I cannot talk about any of it. So I'm not going to say, so "Well, come get me." Well, <laughs> I, I, so let's. See if there's something else you really like. How about we we get back together when there's something you see and go, oh, okay, That's, I like that. And you can come ask me rather than just something I did.
1: All right. I, I definitely will keep that in mind. I, I look forward to seeing what you work on next and, and viewing them all. If you
0: don't mind, can you do the bumper for us? Absolutely. Want me to do that right now? Sure. Okay. Hi, this is Mark Zaslav, writer, director, producer, and someone who doesn't get royalties. And you are listening to Spoiler Country. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. want me to do another one
1: <laughs> that, that was fantastic but I, I if you want to do okay. another one that's fantastic too but like i said that, that that was a good
0: one okay then let's leave it
1: <laughs> yeah th- th- definitely keep it like i said thank you so much sir and if you if, if, if I, I will um not to annoy you, but if you want to send me on um, that bible that'd be fantastic
0: yeah. let me let me go see if i can dig it up i'm pretty sure i have that bible but i i, I know i have the original script the pilot script so at worst, I'll send you that. Actually, the, the other question I actually
1: forgot to ask you, and I probably should, I guess we can always edit this, and make it sound like I didn't forget to, to mention it. Do you ever do conventions or have you done conventions in the past? I've done a few.
0: Now with the pandemic, I don't do any. I've done a few. I, I usually for Disney stuff, because occasionally people will nag me and say, I did the Long Beach Comic Con or something a couple of times. Because I was nagged and I, I, I avoided Comic-Con because it was just a nightmare. Mm. I would do them more now. I just don't usually like talking about my old work. This mm. was rare because Mighty Max, I, I, I like Mighty Max and usually people don't ask about it. Yeah. But, you know, now if they want me on a, a panel to talk about writing, that's something else. I will go anywhere to talk about writing and try to help people write it you know, that's different. But when it's like, Hey, what what about this? And tailspin that. And and it's kind of like, I'm flattered and sometimes I'll do it, but generally it's kind of like, I just think I always point to the actors, you know, like I'll be on a panel with an actor and go, he's way more entertaining than I am Ask him a question, (laughs) ask her a question. You don't want to hear from me, you know, I'm just the writer. So.
1: Well, if you ever hit the convention circle again, and anywhere near Rhode Island or Massachusetts or or, uh, um, Connecticut, Please let me know. I would love to um, see you uh, get an autograph from you at a convention at some point. So definitely give me
0: a heads up on that one. Absolutely. And if you know anybody at a convention when the pandemic is over, tell them they should get me over there because I'll go.
1: (laughs) I I, I do and I will.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, there you go. I'll make a thing about it.
1: (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, sir. You're phenomenal. And like I said, hopefully we'll have you on sometime in the future. Cool.
0: Have a good one. You as well.
2: That was awesome. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on and chatting with us, especially about you know Mighty Max, which is uh, a part of my childhood. Uh, I did enjoy that show growing up. It was awesome. Um, I'm really excited to see what else you do in the future. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Now, guys, if you liked that, and I know you did, you need to go over to Splivers.com for a couple reasons. One, no more reasons we always take. You know, we have all of our back issues there, so many other shows, articles, reviews, previews, go to the store, buy a t-shirt, buy a hood, buy, you know, buy something, to cool, stuff. But today... On December 22nd, we launched a brand new show. Well, we watched a, a preview or a prelude of a brand new show called Hard Agree with Andrew Sumner. And uh, today we launched a prelude of a something that comes out tomorrow, which is going to be awesome. And starting next month in January, uh, it's going to be, you know, every month, every couple of weeks, there's going to be new episodes of Hard Agree. You're going to want to check it out. So, just so go check that out. Now, lastly, Notion's of Podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu provides you to do, open the mind and read more.